Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. God bless you. Uh, I remember a, uh, a day a few months ago where I was in the sanctuary here at Valley Center praying. Uh, and um, I sat in the front row on a Saturday morning, came down here intentionally to pray for a specific subject. Uh, I came down here to pray for forgiveness. And it wasn't forgiveness for me. It was that God would put a heart of forgiveness in me that I would be able to forgive. Um, specifically, uh, some uh, people who were not uh, particularly gracious uh, at a church I used to work at. And I spent all of a Saturday morning down here praying that God would teach me to forgive. Strange thing happened. That was on a Saturday morning. Two days later, on a Monday, I received a call from a, a new widower who asked me if I would do his wife's memorial service at that old church. Uh, and I had not been back to that old church since I had left it uh, years before. So I told him it was in his court to go and ask permission, which he did, and I was invited, and I went and led that memorial service, first time I had been back on that campus. Nothing significant happened uh, when I was there, but I feel like something in heaven shifted that day. Forgiveness is one of the most distinctive elements of the Christian faith. It sets Jesus' teachings apart from the teachings of every other faith and philosophy. The kind of forgiveness that Jesus calls us to is radical and otherworldly. It's not a simple ethic. It's not a, an ethic of do good. It's something more than that. And it's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I want to spend the next three weeks looking at what forgiveness means and how we might best do it. Because it's in forgiveness that we find our freedom. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you have set us free, that you came to set us free, that you died to set us free, and that in your death on the cross, we find forgiveness like we would nowhere else, and that you then have the power to put in our hearts through your spirit, a spirit of forgiveness like we could not muster on our own. And so we ask that today and in the weeks to come that you would conjure in us a, a true spirit of forgiveness, forgiveness like yours, that we'd be able to view those who have wronged us with the kind of grace that you view us, that we would forgive our debtors as you have forgiven our debts. And so now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Forgiveness uh, is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, and it is particular to the Christian faith. In, in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish tradition, there was an, uh, a holiday once every 50 years called Jubilee. Uh, it was a financial holiday in which all debts were forgiven. If in the midst of a time of trial and suffering, you have to give your property to someone else because it's all you have to give, at the year of Jubilee, they are to give it back. Whether or not you pay for it, they are to give it back. back. All debts are canceled. Uh, in the year of Jubilee, everything that you owe to someone else is gone. Everything that they owe to you is gone. Everything resets. Because the people of God were to live by the principles of a different kingdom and not the principles of this world. They were not to cling to the things of this world, but instead to release them freely as an act of grace. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And that would have conjured in the mind of every Jewish follower in the first century world the practice of jubilee. I forgive the debts of those uh, who, to, uh, who owe me 
And I anticipate they will forgive my debts uh, at the same time. That is Jubilee. Forgive my debts as I forgive the debts of those who owe me. And at the end of that prayer, Jesus circles back and hits that one line. And he says, if you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. He adds a note of reciprocity in there. What sense would it make for other people to forgive your debts and you to hold on to theirs? So if you won't forgive theirs, yours aren't forgiven. But if you want your debts totally wiped clean, you forgive the debts of others. And Jesus will take that to an extreme like no other moral teacher. You are to forgive not just seven times, but 70 times seven times. You are to forgive immensely. You are to forgive nonstop. You are to forgive in a way that does not make sense in this world. And then he modeled it finally on the cross. When he prayed for those who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus calls us to a kind of forgiveness that we of our own human accord cannot bring about. We have to ask for Jesus to place it in us. But he teaches it is critical to who we are as followers of Jesus. It is what this faith is about. And I want to read today a parable of Jesus, a teaching of Jesus, in which he talks about how critical it is to forgive and what it looks like for us to forgive in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18 at verse 21. Listen to God's word. Then Peter, the disciple of Jesus, came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And I think he picks the number seven here because seven harkens back to the creation of the world and seven days of the week. God created the world in seventh days. It, it, it's a number of completion. It's a number of finality. Am I supposed to completely forgive them? Up to seven times. And Jesus I, says, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Not just completely, but over and over again. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that, he had, uh, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. <clears throat> the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In other words, he asked for patience, and what he got was absolute absolution. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Whoo! Gracious. You hear what Jesus says here? Do you hear his ferocity? 
Do you hear how important this is to Jesus? In this parable, the king forgives a debt. And the servant, who is forgiven, then refuses to forgive someone else. And so the king, in turn, punishes the unforgiving servant. And Jesus says, that's how it's going to be with you if you don't forgive. Here's why I think this is important. First, Jesus is not a hothead. If he says things fiercely, it's because they're important. Everything he says is for our benefit. Everything he says, he says in love. And so when he is fierce, he's fierce like a father telling his son not to do drugs. He knows the destruction that will happen if he is ignored here. If he's fierce, he still speaks in love, but he doesn't want us to miss this because this is a matter of our salvation. The reason I think this is so important to Jesus is because unforgiveness is murder in diapers. It is a seed that will grow a crop of hatred. Unforgiveness wreaks all kinds of damage in our lives later on. If I have a wound and I leave it untreated, then it will become infected and the infection will do more damage than the original wound. And that is how unforgiveness works in the heart of we who follow Jesus. It's how it works in the hearts of all human beings. Jesus says you're going to have to work your way through forgiveness because the consequences of not doing it are worse. Now, you all know, if you've uh, been uh, attending Real Life for a while, if you've been listening for a while, or following on the podcast at reallife.la, um, I don't talk about demons and Satan a lot, even though I think demons are real things. And when you and I read the Bible together and we come to a passage about demons, we talk about it then, but it's not a pet subject of mine. Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, Bacon, these are pet subjects of mine, not demons. But I want to tell you something about demonic activity today. Demons are like rats, and they're attracted to garbage. And if you kill a rat, but you don't get rid of the garbage, more will come. And that's how it is with demons. Unforgiveness is a horrific kind of garbage in our lives. And you can pray that demonic activity would go away in your life, and it will. But if you don't get rid of the garbage, more will come. Unforgiveness is a horrible kind of garbage to carry in your soul. And if you do not get rid of it, it will attract dark things to your life. <clears throat> Unforgiveness uh, will, will poison you. Nelson Mandela uh, in South Africa famously said, uh, keeping, holding, holding unforgiveness against someone, refusing to forgive someone is like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. Unforgiveness is a poison to our souls. So Jesus is fierce here because he really wants to set us free. I remember once talking to a guy who was very angry because someone had truly wronged him. And he said, do you mean I have to forgive that person? And I said, no, you don't have to. You get to. Because the other choice is remaining trapped in your unforgiveness and all the poison and all the rats that come with it. Jesus wants to set us free from all that. The big question is how? How do I forgive people? Because the teachings of Jesus about forgiveness seem to me unnatural, unfair, counterintuitive, and generally impossible. 
I don't just mean that I don't want to do them, although that's true too. I mean, I have no idea how on earth I'm supposed to. You might as well tell me to flap my arms and fly. The absurd physical activity that would ensue would be an analogy for what goes on in my heart and in my mind when I try to forgive somebody. I just don't know how to make myself do it. There are over 90 biblical passages about forgiveness, and not a single one of them tells us how. It's just kind of the Nike of virtues. Just do it. And so I want to talk about forgiveness and what it looks like. From a biblical perspective, I think there are five steps to forgiveness, and I think they're all necessary. Step number one, um, oh, and I want to say here, I want to say here, uh, I'm not going to start with the most dire circumstances. I'm not going to start with a case of the murderer or the abuser or, or the really extreme cases. I want to start with the, the commonplace examples of unforgiveness and work our way up the ladder. So I just want to talk about the, the case of somebody who just, just wasn't nice enough to you uh, and it stuck with you. You couldn't just walk away from it. So unforgiveness is an issue, uh, but, but not a most, uh, a most dire or extreme example. And I also don't want to talk about the complex situation in which two people have wronged each other and both of them need to forgive. I simply want to talk about the act of forgiving someone else. Seeking to be forgiven would be a different sermon entirely, and that's not what we're doing today. Okay, five steps towards forgiveness from a biblical perspective. Number one, don't seek revenge. And I think this one comes in two parts. The first one is, obviously, you just don't go get revenge. You have enough self-control not to do it. Jesus says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Resist the temptation to hit them back. And instead, make yourself vulnerable in a way that holds them accountable for what they're doing. Don't go get revenge. Um, at this stage, uh, you may not have the ability in your heart to do that. You may want so much to get revenge on them that self-control is beyond you. If that's the case, pray. Be real honest with Jesus and say, I really want to get revenge on this person. Place in me enough self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Put enough self-control in my heart that I would not go get revenge on this person. And, and make sure that you do that across the board. Because most of our revenge is subtle. Gossip is the easiest and most common form of revenge. And we make it look like we're not even getting revenge. Uh, I'm not going to go get that person or do anything to that person, so I'm innocent. I, I was actually the victim. So what I'm going to do is go tell everybody else in the community what I victim I was, so they all hate that person. But I didn't do anything because I was the victim, right? No, you absolutely did something. You defied the commands of the living God and you went and got revenge by gossiping about that person and passive aggressively getting even with them. Don't do that. And if your temptation in your heart is to go do it anyway, pray, Jesus, give me a heart not to gossip about that person. The second part of not seeking revenge is I think a psychological maneuver uh, that I find uh, helpful. Romans chapter 12 says, leave room for God's wrath. In other words, trust that God gets to be everyone's judge in the end. I don't have to go get revenge on someone because they are going to answer to God for their lives. 
Um, it's, it's like when you've been robbed and then the person who stole from you gets arrested. You don't have to go get even with that person. That person's already been caught. That person's going to get the punishment they deserve. So entrust their, arrestment to the, the, their, their arrest to the authorities. You don't have to go do that. And, and I know in the end, God is a better judge than I am. He will judge more righteously and more graciously than I would. He can see into the other person's heart, which I cannot. So I su surrender revenge. I surrender justice to God to let him deal with the person who has wronged me. Uh, now, if that's all we've done, if that's all we've done is step one, I didn't get revenge on that person. We have not yet forgiven that person. Uh, there's a temptation to say, well, I didn't get revenge, so I've forgiven them. No, you haven't. Uh, you're, you, there's still uh, several steps we have to go through. That, that's like saying, uh, I've left my house to go to work and I'm standing on the front doorstep and I'm not at home anymore, so I must be at work. No, you're not. Good luck getting a paycheck. You have only taken the first step out the door, but work is still a ways off. And if all we've done is not sought revenge, forgiveness is still a few steps off. So here's, here's the second step. Pray for the person who has wronged, with you, who has wronged you. Uh, and again, I think this one comes in uh, two parts. Uh, first of all, pray like the psalmists pray. There are certain psalms that say things like, Lord, get even with the people who wronged me and shame those who shamed me. Break the teeth of the wicked. And Lord, let the bodies hit the floor. They're really psalms that read like that. God, I, I want you to go get even with that person. And the offense is not that somebody wrote that down. The offense is that someone wisely and calmly chose to include that in the canon of Scripture. Because the Bible portrays in raw and uh, uh, certain terms the nature of the human heart. The Bible knows you and I. So start with the authentic prayer of the Psalms, God, I am so mad at that person. Get back at them. Once you've prayed that prayer, take a deep breath, lower your voice, and then pray a different kind of prayer. Pray a vision for the life of the person who has wronged you. A vision in which they truly come to know God and repent. Not, not a vengeful kind of vision where they're, you know, all sniveling and, and begging for mercy, but a, a, a vision in which they come to know God and seek to do right in the world and pledge never to do again the things that they've done wrong, where they seek to make right the things that they've broken in this world. Remember the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, one of the authors of a lot of the letters in the New Testament? Before he was the Apostle Paul, he went around killing Christians. And I suspect the Christians of the early church prayed for him because Jesus told them to. And perhaps as a result of their prayers, he became not only a follower of Jesus, but one of the greatest preachers and church planters of the first century world. And his letters have existed throughout history and led countless people to become followers of Jesus. Pray that kind of vision for the people who have wronged you. Pray that they would become the kind of goody two-shoes who goes around telling everybody about Jesus and trying to do everything right. And they give away their pursuit of the pleasures of this world and they live just to, to be saints. It, it may be a fantasy, but it's a biblical fantasy.
It may be something that you don't think could become true, but what is impossible for humanity is possible with God. So step two, pray for that person, particularly for a vision of a life lived right. Number three, pause and consider your own sinfulness. Pause and consider your own brokenness. How good do you really think you are? I mean, how much do you really think you deserved God's forgiveness of you? Paul's letter to the Romans sets us up on this one. In chapter 1 of Romans, it has all this really heated, condemnatory language of people who have lived terrible lives. Shame on them, all these pagan sinners. And the self-righteous, good people reading this letter were supposed to get to the end of chapter 1 and go, good, they deserve it. I agree, good letter. Well written, Paul. Chapter 2 then says, now hold on. You better not condemn them if you're doing the same things. Because if you're doing the same things, you're going to get the same punishment they do. By the end of chapter 2, the good reader of the letter is supposed to be a little bit nervous and say, oh, now hold on, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm still okay. They're, they're the bad ones and I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't do all the things that those terrible pagans do, so, so maybe I'm okay. And then chapter 3 of Romans delivers the coup de gras. And it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good, not one. The wages of sin is death and everybody deserves it, including you, the person who condemned all those people who you thought were so bad, the person who's proven to be a hypocrite because you're just as bad and broken as everybody else. How good do you think you really are? I mean, if, if you had not grown up in a society where you were taken care of and provided for and educated and given social boundaries to guard your behaviors, I mean, how good would you be in just a, a raw and unchecked state? All of us are just one plane crash away from Lord of the Flies. The Bible says none of us is good, not one. So stop and consider that before you hold a grudge against someone else before you go to whisper to somebody else about how bad that person has been to you stop and think about yourself look at this parable look at the parable of jesus this is how it is god forgives us a massive debt how could we go and hold on to a little grudge against somebody else when we look at how jesus died for our sins on the cross we've been forgiven a massive amount shouldn't we release the debts that we hold against others so number three, uh, contemplate uh, your own uh, brokenness. Number four, don't seek repayment. Don't adjudicate. Uh, don't try to go get back from the person what you fairly deserve because they wronged you. This is a hard one. Jesus says, if someone steals from you your shirt, give them your, their coat, uh, give them your coat also. Uh, it's just like if they strike you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. It's not fair, but it's right. And this is tricky here because we can go and seek what looks like justice, but actually just do it in the name of revenge. And when we do so, we sin. Or we can fail to pursue justice when that's exactly what God wants. The distinction, I think, is a, a purity of heart. If I seek justice in the name of love, I'm doing something different from revenge. Consider, for instance, the, the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. 
Um, I can't see inside of his heart, but when he talked about making society right, he seemed to do it without a call for revenge. He insisted on nonviolence, and he talked about loving your enemies. He was inspired by the model of Jesus. I don't hear anger in his voice. I can't see into his heart, but I think he set a model of what it looks like to pursue justice without revenge. Don't adjudicate means don't go try to get back what you think that person owes you. Instead, go to Jesus and say, I surrender into your hands what I think I need in this life. And you know what has been taken from me, but I leave in your hands the right to judge the thief and the right to restore what has been taken from me. And I will not go demand a repayment of debts. I leave that in your hands. We surrender to God our own willfulness for justice and let God call us to the kind of justice that he wants to deliver. Fifthly, and this is the hardest one. This is the last one. Will yourself to do good for that person. Will yourself, given the opportunity, given the encounter, to repay evil with good, to do good to the person who wronged you. Now, remember, I'm not talking about severe cases like the case of abuse. I'm not saying go back into a, the context of that relationship. We're talking about commonplace examples of unforgiveness. Prepare yourself mentally to do good for this person should you encounter them. And that might mean don't gossip about them in public, but instead say something kind about them in public. It might mean if you see them in need, help them up. I can't give you every possible scenario, but I have the feeling that the Holy Spirit will prompt you when the opportunity presents itself. And you can ignore the Holy Spirit if you want to, but if you ignore the Holy Spirit, you are rejecting the abundant free life that Jesus wants to give you. The fifth step is this one. Be prepared, should the opportunity pr to present itself, to do good to those who have wronged you. Uh, I remember seeing a, a prison ministry that was trying to teach uh, prisoners this practice. Um, and what they did is they went into the prison and first they, they gathered a, a little Christian fellowship group of prisoners and they took fresh baked cookies to every single one of them. And of course the gift was well received. The next time this little ministry went back and they got this group together, they took two batches of cookies to each prisoner and they said, one batch is for you, just for you to enjoy. And the second one is for you to give to somebody else. Anybody you want to give the second batch of cookies to somebody else. Well, this was well received as well, because not only did they get to enjoy cookies, they also got to enjoy that kind of that, that human bonding that comes from charity. So they got to appreciate that as well. The third one was much harder. They went back with two batches of cookies for each prisoner in the fellowship group. They said, one of them is for you, for you to enjoy. The second one, go give to someone you don't like. Maybe even someone who's wronged you. After they did that, they got together and debriefed. What was that experience like? And they talked about how hard it was to do something good for someone you resented. But that is the kind of exercise that God wants to take us through. And so I'm thankful for the things that I've gone through in this life that were 
painful for the deserts that I have had to walk through when I was wronged. Because it is only walking in walking through those kinds of deserts that God can bring about the mature virtues in us like patience and forgiveness. It's only when we, we go through the process of needing to forgive that we can learn how to forgive. And so I thank God for the deserts that I have had to walk through in my life because I know that I needed the virtues he brought about in the desert. It's only in the desert that we get to see God rain bread down from the sky. I want to be the kind of person who has learned to be patient and to forgive. I just don't want to be there when the process happens. But I need to be. Of course, I'm only now in the end getting to the best part of this parable that Jesus taught. And that, that's that it contains a great promise. God is a king of all righteousness and justice whom we have wronged. And he could demand all kinds of repayment from us or punish us any way he wants to. And instead, Jesus died on the cross to take our punishment on himself so that we would be totally and completely forgiven. There's no longer any punishment to dole out at us. I don't have to learn to forgive in a vacuum. I learn to forgive in the context of the God who forgave me. What, what I get to do is dwell every day on the graciousness of God's sacrifice for me to forgive me and to teach me how to forgive. I get to go to Jesus every day and say, place in my heart something like your heart, something that's willing to surrender this world and instead take on the kingdom of heaven and live by its principles. I remember when my kids were little uh, and I was teaching them how to write, I would take their little hands inside of my big hands and guide the crayon to show them how to form letters. And I think as I learn how to forgive, God takes my little hand inside of his big hand and guides me to form the letters. To bring out of me a language I could not produce myself. I don't, I don't have to figure out forgiveness. I get to experience forgiveness. And then to continue to live into that experience. And let it flow through me. Because God is a God of love and grace. Who wants to forgive. Even the most broken of us. Even those who have wronged me. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your grace that you died for us to forgive us and that we didn't earn it and don't deserve it and can't repay you. And I thank you that you don't demand repayment. That instead you just invite us to live in the grace of your forgiveness. God, may that grace wash over the hearts of all who fear justice. For all those who fear repayment. For all those who live guiltily. God, pour your grace out on us. And then as a people of grace, send us out into the world to forgive and to love and to restore in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church.